You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Northway family, good to see you this evening. Hope you're doing well. Glad you're with us. Hey, how about Kate Tyson on the cello right here, y'all? Cello! Come on. Come on, cello mixing up in this game. I like it. I like it. Uh, If you are a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Just grateful you're with us. Love to invite you to turn with me, if you would, if you have a Bible with you, to Mark chapter 8. That is where we're going to be here uh, this evening, Mark 8. We are in the midst of a seven-week series called Seven Marks of a Disciple. And what we're trying to do in this series is explore what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And the lens by which we are doing that is looking at Christ's own words, his own words in the scriptures where Jesus explicitly comes out and says, if you do this, then you are a disciple of mine. Or if you do not do this, you're not willing to do this, then you cannot be a disciple of mine. Those specific passages is what we're studying. And uh, in doing so, we've looked at two characteristics, two marks of a disciple thus far in the series. We looked at the first one is the idea of loving Jesus that a true characteristic, a true mark of a disciple of Jesus is one who has a supreme and incomparable love for Jesus Christ above all other loves that makes any other lesser loves pale in comparison to the love that we have for Jesus Christ out of the love in which he's loved us. And then we looked at the second mark of a disciple, which is the idea of abiding in the word. Um, that a true follower of Jesus is one who doesn't just have uh, play lip service with a confession of Jesus, but actually treasures the word of God enough to submit one's life under the counsel of God's word, that God's word would serve as the governing voice in our life, uh, the most sufficient and uh, highest form of authority when it comes to, to life and godliness as we pursue Jesus and conform to the image of of him as followers of his. And this week, we're going to look at a mark that I think uh, it may hurt a little bit as we get into these next few weeks. And this mark is the idea of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus who denies ourselves, the denial of self. And uh, we're going to see this in in Mark chapter 8. Jesus is going to Uh, lay this out for us here, but I want to give us some context before we dive into this chapter because it's important to know where we're at in Jesus's ministry to understand why he's about to say what he's about to say. Um, The very next chapter in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem. It is the culmination of an earthly ministry um, that was not for Jesus to come so that he could overthrow all the ruling nations at the time that opposed him. It was the culmination of ministry that wasn't so Jesus at this moment would inherit the earth and establish the fullness of his kingdom um, and uh, remove every injustice and make all things new. That's not what this particular advent of Christ, his coming, was for. No, the culmination of Jesus's ministry is to die. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that he could substitute himself for us, that he would go to a cross and he would take the penalty that we deserved for our sin so that all who trust in him can have their sins forgiven, be adopted as sons and daughters of God, 
secured by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Spirit uh, to walk in the newness of life. This is why Jesus came, though, was to die. It was the culmination of his ministry. Jesus's birth was under the shadow of the cross. And, and so that's where Jesus is turning to in chapter nine and following. However, in chapter eight, Jesus is gonna start getting more specific with his disciples as to why he came, as well as more specific uh, concerning the instruction for the disciples of, of what it looks like for them, what they can expect in following Jesus after he's gone. And, and so we're gonna pick up here in Mark chapter eight, starting in verse 27. This will be our context here. Notice right out the gate in verse 27, Jesus went, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had just sent out his disciples to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And they came back and Jesus is now gonna take a debrief retreat with them up into Northern Israel in the villages of Caesarea Philippi right on the border of Lebanon and Israel. He's right at the top. And as he's on this little debrief retreat, uh, notice what he does. He pulls the disciples together. And as they were walking, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that's a good question. They had just been sent out. They just heralded the good news. They'd pointed people to Jesus. And Jesus rightly is asking them, as you encountered and engaged in this ministry, who did people believe me to be? And of course, in this moment, the disciples reply to him. Well, some, some thought you were John the Baptist. When we were talking to him about you, they thought you were John the Baptist. Others, they thought you were Elijah. And, and even others, they thought you were just one of the prophets. So they, yeah, they, when they think of Jesus Christ, other people tend to see you, Jesus, as just a good teacher, a prophet, maybe a rabbi. That's how they perceive you. And that's, that's good. It's good to understand that in your ministry. However, what Jesus is mostly concerned with is the next question. When he looks at the disciples and he goes, okay, who do you say that I am? And after all, that's the real question, right? That's the question for us. It, uh, it ultimately doesn't really matter who your parents believe Jesus to be. It ultimately doesn't matter who your coworkers believe Jesus to be or your neighbors or anyone else that you're trying to engage. As important as it is, Ultimately, what matters to Jesus in this moment is who do you think Jesus is? Who do you believe him to be? And that's the question we're dealing with here. And of course, if you know this story well, verse 29, Peter, first to the mic, and he's gonna stand up and he's gonna boldly confess here in verse 29 when he says, you are the Christ. Peter rightly understood Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the, another translation of the word Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we in Israel have been waiting for uh, for centuries. You're the one the prophets spoke of, the one whom God would save, uh, God would send to save us, deliver us from our captivity. You're the one we have been waiting for. You are the Messiah, the sent one of God. Now, it doesn't say so here, but if you know in the other gospel accounts, Jesus commends him on this. You've rightly understood who I am, um, but you didn't come up with that on your own. God's given that to you. But he tells them right here, he strictly charges them not to tell anyone about him because his time isn't ready yet. And so what Jesus does though, based on this confession in verse 31, he then begins to teach them 
that the Son of Man, and that's one of the Davidic titles, it's one of the titles given in the Old Testament to Jesus, um, both fully God, fully man, that the Messiah would carry this title. So Jesus says, you say I'm the Messiah, you're right. The Messiah, the Son of Man, let me tell you what he's come to do. He must suffer many things. And he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And Oh, and catch this. That Messiah is going to be killed. But three days later, he's going to rise again. And notice what Mark includes at the beginning of verse 32, which is interesting. And he said this plainly. You see, up until now, Jesus had never been so blunt about what his purpose was, of what his fate was, what was going to happen to him as the culmination of his ministry, which lead to his crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection. And now in the wake of this confession where Peter rightly stands up and says, you're the Messiah, Jesus stands forth here and says, yeah, I am the Messiah, but I need you to know I'm not the Messiah that you think I am. I'm not necessarily the Messiah that you are wishing I was in this moment. See, Peter, along with many others, they're hoping that the Messiah is going to come and overthrow their physical enemies, as promised. Rome would be disarmed by this Messiah, and Israel would dwell in peace, and, and, and this this Messiah would come with a rod of iron and rule the earth and everything would be under his feet just as they were hoping for. This is what you're here for, Jesus. And Jesus says, in many ways here, he's gonna let them know, I'm not coming now to conquer. I'm not coming to liberate you from Rome and free you from the bonds of your captivity to, to, uh, to national bondage here. No, I, I, I came to die because I came to free you, not from Rome, but to free you from you, to free you from the bonds of Satan. I came to deliver you from captivity to your sin by being a substitutionary sacrifice for you on this cross. This is what Jesus is trying to explain to them. Now you would think Peter understood this well. If he had the knowledge we have 2020 on this side of the cross, he would probably fall on his face right now Sad that Jesus is going to die, but so thankful that you have come out of such great love for us that you would substitute yourself and, and you would take upon my sins. And yes, it must happen this way, but is that what Peter does? No, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. He begins to correct Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's, you, we're not having this killing thing going on right here. That's not it at all. And then notice what Mark tells us is as Peter is rebuking him, Jesus turns and he sees the disciples. You gotta know right next to him are the other 11 and then around them is a crowd that has surrounded of other disciples who've been following Jesus as well. Jesus takes note of them as Peter's rebuking him about why he's come. And Jesus turns back and he looks at, P at Peter here and notice the harsh words. He rebukes Peter. Now he corrects Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Now, I don't know about you. This is the first time and only time in all of Scripture Jesus ever refers to somebody as Satan other than Satan himself in this moment, um, reflecting on, on what is behind Peter's motivations here. Now, I don't know about you, but that's typically a tip-off. When you're rebuking Jesus and he says, Satan, get behind me, that's usually a tip-off that maybe you've done something wrong in this moment. But you see, Peter believed Jesus was the Messiah, and rightly so. But he expected him to be a certain kind of Messiah, one that existed to fulfill Peter's dreams for what Peter wants. He wasn't the Messiah that came to be crucified, to die, to be buried and raised three days later. He was the Messiah who came to overthrow Rome, to remove all judicial oppression around us and to hook me up with a fat house on the hill with a three-car garage, wife, 2.5 kids, and a dog. That's what he's here for. And Peter, in many ways, is telling Jesus, man, don't go ruining my plans for us, Jesus. I expect something else, not death. That's not how this is supposed to end. Now, before we put Peter on blast, do we not do the same thing? Is this issue right here, is this a first century issue only for Peter, or is this a 21st century issue for all of us in this room, myself included? Oh, it is certainly an issue for us. You see, we do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah, you're the Messiah, and I believe in you, but part of your plan is hooking me up with a mate. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm probably gonna need to pull you aside a little bit. I'm gonna need to correct you a little bit on what this happens. And the truth is, man, this is where we start testing our will versus God's will on some things and figuring out where the rub is. I've I said this before, uh, but one of my, my favorite things to do when I'm officiating weddings, I don't always do it, but sometimes I'll do it. We'll be sitting there if I know the groom well enough. He's standing next to me and here comes the bride and getting ready to come in and make the grand entrance in the back. Everybody's waiting for this moment. And right before she comes in, I just look at him. I go, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus returned right now? Wouldn't that be awesome? And the look on his face going, uh, yeah, uh, no, no, could we? Can we wait one more day and and you see the tension between these two, something that we want so bad and so glorious, but I've got this thing here, if you could just wait. And you feel this tension. Or Jesus, you're you're the Messiah, I I believe and I confess in you, but but I need you, I, I need you to be the Messiah that furthers my career. You're the Messiah, all right, but you're the Messiah that needs to fill my bank account. You're the Messiah that needs... Uh, to protect me from any harm and create ease and comfort in my life. Because if you prove to be any other Messiah that doesn't do that, then I'm not sure I want to follow that Messiah. And if, if he does do those things, and I'll follow him. If not, it's time to find another one. You see, this is called the meshing of wills. God's will meshed or even submitting to our will for what we want. And Christ says, I can't allow that to happen with my disciples. That's not characteristic of one who is following me. That's characteristic of someone who's following you. You're following you. And the reason Peter gets rebuked so hard here, and again, Peter's in many ways done nothing wrong, just misinterpret or not fully interpret the prophecies in the Old Testament, but specifically the reason that he is rebuked here and the strong invoking of Satan get behind me is because this type of attitude 
of putting our will for Jesus above God's will for Jesus is satanic. It finds its roots in the garden. This is exactly what happened in Genesis 3. When God said, you can eat from all these trees, just don't eat from this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. God issues a decree, an edict, not to do something, not because I'm trying to harm you or hold out on you, but because I know what's good for you. I know I designed this, and I want this relationship to be built on trust, that you'll follow my will because you believe that I am a good and faithful father to you. And then remember, a servant, a serpent comes along. He says, did God really say that to you? Oh, God's just holding out on you because he knows if you eat of that tree, then your eyes are going to be open to, to what's true, that God knows you're going to be just like him and he doesn't want that to happen. He's holding out on you. So go ahead and eat. When we take our will and we put it ahead of God's will, that is satanic. And the same is rooted in, in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is in his own wilderness being tempted, just like Ab and Eve was, and where he was being tempted with the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And in that moment, Jesus did what Adam and Eve did not do. He held faithful to the will of God, quoting scripture right back to the serpent, and he would not trade wills in that moment. And so you and I, Likewise, we cannot put our ambitions, our desires, our destinations, our will ahead of God's if we're going to follow Christ. So in verse 34, Jesus is going to use this tragic misunderstanding by Peter as well by us, and he's going to use it as a teaching lesson for everyone concerning what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And here's where you need to note, because this becomes interesting. In these marks of a disciple thus far, the first two, if we're honest, are kind of cush. Love Jesus, abide in his word. Oh, I'll, I'll take that all day. Set me up in a coffee shop. I can have a quiet time and some coffee and cuddles with Jesus. And I memorize some scripture and I'll do that. Yeah, I like that, Jesus. This one is going to confront us differently. Deny yourself. Um, and, and so we're gonna see here, Jesus is gonna get to the core of this issue on discipleship by telling us the path of following him is actually going to cost us more than we could ever imagine. That if you wanna be a disciple of mine, don't think for a moment that this journey is just gonna be filled with, with hugs and grins. And this journey is just gonna be filled with youth group games and scavenger hunts and Christian concerts and Sunday potlucks and Awana badges, as good as those things can be. The truth is, Jesus is going to say, the road that I'm about to travel is going to cost me my life for you. And if you want to be my disciple, if you want to come after me, it's going to cost you the same. And you're going to have to let go of you if you're going to have to hold on to me. And so what you're going to see in verse 34 here, in just this one verse, are the next three marks in this series. Um, and these three marks... Are the, kind, are the kind of marks that are characteristic of a disciple that Jesus came to produce in us and that he has commissioned us to go make of others. And so notice in 34, verse 34, what Jesus has to say here. It isn't just geared, by the way, towards the 12. This is for the whole crowd. This is for everyone standing around. This isn't just for the pastors, y'all. This is for those in the pew. This is for all of us who are gonna follow Jesus Christ. And calling the crowd to himself, with his disciples, Jesus said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, that language right at the beginning there, if anyone wants to come after me, that is rabbinic language for discipleship. That's the piece of this verse where Jesus is saying, if you want to be a disciple of mine, to come after me was rabbinic language. If you were a Talmudim, if you were a disciple that was going to uh, follow after a rabbi, you would go after the rabbi that you chose to be like. You would go pursue that rabbi. That rabbi wouldn't always pursue you. You would go pursue him and you would pursue that rabbi. And you, your goal, as I mentioned earlier in the series, isn't just to be uh, to learn from that rabbi. It is to become just like that rabbi. You would walk in the literal footsteps of that rabbi and emulate and imitate that rabbi. And so in this sense, Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, then you're going to need to deny yourself. Now, Mark Bailey, who wrote the book To Follow Him, uh, says in that book that as long as the world has been around, every person, every country, every culture, every worldview, every ideology, it has its own stated purpose for life and what our role is to be in it. For example, Greece. Greece said, be wise, know yourself. Rome said, be strong, discipline yourself. Pharisees said, be holy, separate yourself. Epicureanism said, be sensuous, enjoy yourself. Even today, education says, be resourceful, expand yourself. Psychology says, be understood and explain yourself. Consumerism says, be accumulative and please yourself. Pride says, be superior and promote yourself. Asceticism says, be inferior and suppress yourself. Individualism says, be autonomous, isolate yourself. Communism or even Marxism says, be collective, equalize yourself. Humanism says, be capable, trust yourself. Progressivism says, be innovative and improve yourself. Philanthropy says, be responsible and give of yourself. Existentialism says, be free and live outside yourself. And yet Jesus Christ, the author of our salvation, the creator of this world, says, if you want to come after me, if you truly want to find where life is, you're going to have to deny yourself. How much more countercultural can you get than that statement right there? The word deny literally means to say no to. Literally translated means to put some distance from yourself. Jesus is saying, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to say no to you. Now, to be specific here, Jesus really isn't talking about denying yourself from the pleasures of life here. Like give up vacations, give up entertainment, give up alcohol, give up relationships and that's the way you'll follow me. I've seen too many Christians want to reduce Christianity down to that as some sort of sense of legalistic rules here. Heck, I've tried it, and I can tell you it doesn't work. It only makes it worse. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not asceticism where you deny yourself of something. He says deny yourself, and there's a difference. There's a difference here. 
The emphasis is not on the thing that you're holding on to. Rather, the emphasis is on the you that's holding on to it. It's saying, I renounce my right to rule my life in following Jesus. I'm submitting to his kingship over my life, his lordship over my life. I am declining the offer to be the chief authority and object and focus of my life. My life is not about me anymore. It's about him. And I recognize that by following you, I am letting go of all rights over me. I am yours to do what you will. You own my life now. And biblically speaking, that's true twofold. One, God owns us by the right of creation. And if you've put your trust in Jesus, he owns you by the right of redemption. By the right of creation, we are God's workmanship. He made us, he created us. We're the creation, he's the creator. Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's and all that is within it. That includes us. There's nothing that God doesn't own. And so we belong to him because he's our creator. But if you've put your trust in Jesus, he also owns us by the right of redemption. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And what is that price? The price was the blood of his own son that purchased us as a ransom from our sin and the bondage of sin that we were in, held captive by Satan and has now freed us by faith in him to become sons and daughters. We are alive to him. Paul also said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so here, in the context of Peter telling Jesus, you need to fit into my plan for the kingdom Jesus announces to everyone, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to drop all entitlement. You're going to have to let go of all rulership to your life. You cannot follow me without unfollowing yourself. You must acknowledge that God is God and you are not that he is Lord and we are the servant, that he is the master and we are the student, that he is the father and we are the child, that he is the potter and we are the clay. And we hand over the rights of our lives to be led by him. In other words, this denying characteristic is really that of consecration. It's setting our lives apart from what could have been for us to give unto him for his good design and his glory. It is setting ourselves apart. It is saying your will, Jesus, be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will be done. It's about leveraging my life for his kingdom, not mine. It's Jesus saying, I came to do the will, uh, not the will, uh, my own will, but the will of him who sent me, my father. Or Paul saying, Offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, the kind that is holy and pleasing to who? To the Lord, not to me, not just to me. At the end of the day, it means cease worrying about self-preservation, about self-promotion, about self-protection against anything uncomfortable that maybe come your way that would hinder you from following Jesus. Abandon all self-assertion as a way of life but instead consecrate 
all of our energy, our attention, and our devotion to following hard after the will of the Savior in the time that we have left. Now, for many people, this is the dividing line right here as to whether we will follow Jesus or not. You remember the rich young ruler? We're going to look at him here in a couple of weeks. But the rich young ruler, when given the choice to letting go of all that he was holding on to on this earth in order to follow Jesus, he just couldn't do it. So he walked away from Jesus. Same is true with Judas. I would argue in many times what's at the heart of the of unhelpful versions of deconstruction is our own self really wrestling with wanting to be in control and having a hard time positioning ourselves under the rulership of Jesus. It's hard to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. One of my profs, Howard Hendricks, always used to say, the problem with a living sacrifice just keeps crawling off the altar. It just won't stay on there. And we do, don't we? We know God's will, but we want our own. We say, I know God wants this, but I want this. And I don't know that I can walk away from it. And what Christ is saying here is that if you want to come after me, it has to start with denying you. Now, I wanna stop here for just a moment because I wanna be really clear, especially for anybody that grew up in a very legalistic background, just so we have no confusion here on what the motive is and what we're denying. Anybody that had a PhD in legalism, understand this. Jesus never bids us to deny ourselves for something lesser by getting rid of something greater. That's not what he's doing here. I've quoted this so many times, but I'll say it again because it's very appropriate in this message. John Piper put it this way. Yes, there is a doctrine of self-denial in the Bible. We must deny ourselves sand so that we can build on rock. We must deny ourselves the praise of men so that we can enjoy the approval of God. We must deny ourselves moth-eaten treasures so that we can have eternal wealth. We must deny ourselves safety among men so that we can enjoy security in God. We must deny ourselves drunkenness and gluttony so that we can be the guests at the biggest, longest banquet of the universe. We must deny self-reliance so that we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no wants. Never, never does God ask you to deny yourself a greater value for a lesser value. That's what sin is. On the contrary, always, always, God calls us to surrender second-rate, fleeting, unsatisfying pleasures in order to obtain first-rate, eternal, satisfying pleasures. You know, when people ask me, hey, what's one of the hardest things about leading a church, shepherding and leading a church? I'll say the hardest thing about leading a church is the same thing in leading me. And that is the propensity that you and I both have to want to hold on to the toys rather than communing with the toy maker, of holding on to the things of this world, the creation at the expense of the creator who has moved heaven and earth so that we can come and follow him and enjoy his presence forevermore. I think uh, to do so is hard. It requires a lot of self-discipline, every day reminding myself that his promises are better than anything that I can follow on this earth. 
Um, and it requires discipline. Tom Landry, the, the coach of the Dallas Cowboys back in the day, used to say, I have a job to do that is not very complicated, but it is often difficult. My task is to get 45 men to do what they don't want to do so that they can achieve the one thing they have wanted all their lives. It's very true. C.S. Lewis said it even better, though. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered to us. It's like an ignorant child who, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, to Christ, it is denying ourselves so that we can actually be free. Many of us view denying ourselves as the object of our life in order to follow after Jesus means that we're just going to have to grind it out, that we're leaving behind the good life to go follow him, and that's not at all. He is bidding us to deny ourselves so that we can actually be freed from captivity. Following after our own selves is only re-enslavement and it only leads to oppression and destruction. But following Jesus is the way of life, even if it means through our own death, as we'll look at next week. But the point here, wherever it is that your will and my will is in contradiction to Jesus's will, there's gotta be a yield sign that is right next to us in which we yield our will to his and trust him that God's will for Christ in our lives is greater than any will that we can have for ourselves when we're in control. Jesus says, when you see this characteristic in someone who's willing to give up what they cannot keep, as Jim Elliott said, to gain what they can never lose, you've seen a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So where do we start? How do we, where do we go with the idea of self-denial? I think the first thing for us, just as we've done again each and every week, is we begin to meditate on this text and do some introspection in our own life. I think we gotta admit, it's gotta start with surrender. Start with surrendering the throne of your life to Jesus if you haven't done so already. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he the sun in the middle of your little galaxy here by which all everything else in your life orbits around? Or are you at the center of your life in which Jesus is orbiting around you? Is Jesus on the throne of your life? And then with that, do you believe that Jesus is good? And that whatever Jesus would call you to in himself, first just to himself in faith and salvation, but even if he were to call you to move to another place, if he were to call you to walk away from an unhealthy relationship that you just don't want to walk away with, do you believe that Jesus is good if he made that call? That Jesus knows the design that he has for you. He knows the plans of the Father for you that are good for his glory that you can trust him in that. And therefore you can surrender your will to his. And that is gonna include identifying for us right now, what are the areas of your life right now that God through the Holy Spirit may be asking you to say no to that you're having a really hard time letting go of?
Ask yourself those hard questions. What is it, what is it he's calling you to exchange a no for a yes for in Christ? And it comes back, by the way, to the last two weeks. You're going to find all these marks build on themselves. When Jesus is the treasure, the greatest love of your life, it becomes easy to submit to him. And when you spend time abiding in his word, you'll begin to see clearly what his will is. And you've said this before, you've heard this before. We have to stop asking the question, what is God's will for my life? And start asking the question, what is God's will? Before you get to all the unknowns that you're so desperate to know, who am I going to marry? When's that going to happen? What job am I going to take? Should I take this or this? Before you get to all those unknowns, let us make sure that we are abiding in what is known, what he's already given to us. See his will as revealed in scripture for you, for who you're to be and how you're to be and wherever he leads you in dependence on him. When you are targeting the known will of God, you will not miss the unknown will. He'll take care of it. But spend time focusing there. And where you see that your will is in contradiction to his, we must repent. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction and confession over that area in your life and turn away from those selfish pursuits to the pursuit of God. We are meant to be consecrated, set apart. That means, y'all, we're gonna have to look different than the rest of Dallas. If this is true, we should look radically different than the culture around us rather than fishing from the same ponds to find our identity and our worth and our purpose. It is in Jesus Christ and have a radical life of surrender in denying ourselves in order that we can see what's coming for us, that we'll be able to pick up our cross and then follow him. If I'm honest, and I think if we're honest, every culture has their own unique challenges when it comes to conflicting wills. I think in the West here in America, sometimes if we're honest as a church, it becomes really hard to discern the difference between the Great Commission and the American dream. And I think we love blending those together. I'll follow Jesus, but I also want my life, liberty, and pursuit of what? Happiness? Whose happiness? My happiness. At the end of the day, as much as I love the democracy we're in, the American dream is rooted in self. And we have to be careful that that never contradicts the call of God who might actually call us to go give our life away for his glory and our good. Well, y'all, that is three marks in. Love for Jesus abiding in the word and denying self. May we be a people who learn to pray as Jesus taught us to, not my will, but yours be done. Not to us, O Lord, but to you, O God. Next week, we're gonna look, what, look at what it means to have a crucified life as a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you just for the illumination of your word. Thank you. God, that whenever you call us to deny ourselves, it is not for something lesser, it is for something greater. Even if our circumstances don't feel like it. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit's power, show us the areas where we need to say no to ourselves, where maybe we have allowed ourselves to assume the throne of our life. Through your gentle correction, God, might we repent of that 
and rightly have our lives orbit Jesus as they were intended to do in a way that would bring about the most glory for your name and the most good for us in our relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.